Part 2 of Chapter 4 of The Abandoned Room This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Abandoned Room by Wadsworth Camp Chapter 4, Section 2 A Strange Light Appears at the Deserted House Paredes started across the yard with a haste, it seemed to Bobby, almost eager. Striking matches as they went, the doctor and Bobby hurried to the front of the house. The rooms appeared undisturbed in their decay. The shutters were closed, the front door was barred, the broken walls from which the plaster hung in shreds leered at them. Suddenly Bobby turned, grasping the doctor's arm. Did you hear anything? The doctor shook his head. Or feel anything? No. I thought, Bobby said excitedly, that there was someone in the hall. I, I simply got that impression, for I saw nothing myself. My back was turned. Paredes strolled silently in. It may have been Mr. Paredes, the doctor said. But Bobby wasn't convinced. Did you see or hear anything coming through the hall, Carlos? No, Paredes said. He had brought the light. With its help they explored the tiny cellar and the upper floor. There was no sign of a recent occupancy. Everything was as Bobby had found it on awakening. A vagrant wind sighed about the place. They looked at each other with startled eyes. They filed out with an incongruous stealth. Then there are ghosts here too, Paredes whispered. Who knows? Dr. Groom mused. It is as puzzling as anything that has happened at the Cedars, unless the light we saw was some phosphorescent effect of decaying wood or vegetation. Then why should it go out all at once, Bobby asked. Is there any connection between this light and what has happened at the Cedars? The house at least, Paredes put in, is connected with what has happened at the Cedars through your experience here. At Dr. Groom's suggestion, they sat in the automobile for some time, watching the house for a repetition of the pallid light. After several minutes, when it failed to come, Bobby set his gears. Graham and Catherine will be worried. They drove quickly away from the black, uncommunicative mass of the abandoned building. The woods were lonelier than before. They impressed Bobby as guarding something. He drove straight to the stable. As they walked into the court, they saw the uncertain candlelight diffused from the room of death. In the hall, Bobby responded to a quick alarm. The cedars was too quiet. What had happened since he and Paredes had left? Catherine, Hartley, he called. He heard running steps upstairs. Catherine leaned over the banister. Her quiet voice reassured him. Is the doctor with you? He nodded. Paredes yawned and lighted a cigarette. He settled himself in an easy chair. Bobby and Dr. Groom hurried up. Catherine led them down the old corridor. Two chairs had been placed in the broken doorway. Graham sat there. He arose and greeted the doctor. 
Nothing has happened since I left, Bobby asked. Graham shook his head. Catherine and I have watched every minute. Dr. Groom walked to the bed and for a long time looked down at Howells. Once he put out his hand, quickly withdrawing it. It's simply a repetition, he said at last, and his voice was softer than its custom. It may be a warning for all we know, that no one may sleep in this room without attracting death. Yet why should that be? I miss this poor fellow's materialistic viewpoint. There's nothing I can do for him, nothing I can say, except that death must have been instantaneous. The police must seek again for a man to place in the electric chair. Graham touched his arm with an odd reluctance. Sitting here for so long I've been thinking. I have always been materialistic too. Tell me seriously, doctor, do you believe there is any psychic force capable of killing two men in this incisive fashion? No one, the doctor answered, can say what psychic force is capable of doing. Some scientists have started to explore, but it is still uncharted country. From certain places, I dare say you've noticed it, one gets an impression of peace and content. From others, a depression, a sense of suffering. I think we all have experienced psychic force to that extent. Remember that this room has a history of intense and rebellious suffering. Some of it I have seen with my own eyes. Your father's fight for life. Catherine was horrible for those of us who knew he had no chance. As I watched beside him, I used to wonder if such violent agony could ever drift wholly into silence. And when we had to tell him, finally, that the fight was lost, it was beyond bearing. If these men had been found dead without marks of violence, Graham said, I might consider such a possibility, irrational as it seems. Irrational? Dr. Groom answered, must not be confused with impossible. The marks of a physical violence, far from proving that it, the attack was physical, strengthens the case of the supernatural. Certainly you've heard and read of pictures being dashed from walls by invisible hands, of objects moved about empty rooms, of cases where human beings have been attacked by inanimate things, heavy things, hurtling through the air. Some scientists recognize such irrational possibilities. Policemen don't. Very well, Graham said stubbornly. I'll follow you that far. But you must show me in this room the sharp object with which these men were attacked, no matter what the force behind it. The doctor spread his hands, his infused eyes nearly closed. That I can't do. At any rate, Robert, this isn't wholly tragic to you. I don't see how anyone could accuse you of aphasia tonight. You've not forgotten, Bobby said slowly, that you spoke of recurrent aphasia. That's the trouble, Graham put in under his breath. He has no more alibi now than he had when his grandfather was murdered. Bobby told of his heavy sleep of the delay in Catherine's arousing him. The doctor's gruff voice was disapproving. You shouldn't have drunk that medicine. It had stood too long. It would only have approximated its intended effect. 
You mean, Bobby asked, that I wasn't sleeping as soundly as I thought? Probably not, but you're by no means a satisfactory victim. Men do unaccountable things in a somnambulistic state, but asleep they haven't wings any more than they have awake. You've got to show us how you entered this room without disturbing the locks. Now, Mr. Graham, we must comply with the law. Call in the police. There's nothing else to do, Bobby agreed. So they went along the dingy corridor and downstairs. From the depths of the easy chair in which Paredes lounged, smoke curled with a lazy indifference. The Panamanian didn't move while Graham and the doctor walked to the back of the hall to telephone. Catherine, an anxious figure, a secretive one, beckoned Bobby to the library. He went with her, wondering what she could want. It was quite dark in the library. As Bobby fumbled with a lamp and prepared to strike a match, he was aware of the girl's provocatively near presence. He resisted a warm impulse to reach out and touch her hand. He desired to tell her all that was in his heart of the division that had increased between them the last few months. Yet to follow that impulse would, he realized, place a portion of his burden on her shoulders, would also, in a sense, be disloyal to Graham, for he no longer questioned that the two had reached a definite sentimental understanding. So he sighed and struck the match. Even before the lamp was lighted, Catherine was speaking with a feverish haste. Before the police come, you've a chance, Bobby. The last chance. You must do before the police arrive, whatever it is, to be done. He replaced the shade and glanced at her, astonished by her intensity, by the forceful gesture with which she grasped his arm. For the first time since Silas Blackburn's murder, all of her vitality had come back to her. What do you mean? She pointed to the door of the private staircase. Just what Howells told you before he went up there to his death. Bobby understood. He reacted excitedly to her attitude of conspirator. He said, she went on, that the criminal had nothing to lose, that it would be to his advantage to have him out of the way to destroy the evidence. I thought of it, Bobby answered, just before I went to sleep. Don't you see, she said, if you had killed him, you would have taken the cast and the handkerchief and destroyed them. Hartley has told me everything, and I could see his coat for myself. The cast and the handkerchief are still in Howell's pocket. Why should I have killed him if not to destroy those? Bobby took her up with a quick hope. You didn't, she cried. Nothing would ever make me believe that you killed him. But you will be charged with it unless the evidence disappears. You'll have no defense. Bobby drew back a little. You want me to go there and... Take from his pocket those things? She nodded. You remember he suggested that he hadn't sent his report. That may be there too. Bobby shook his head. He must have said that as a bait. At the worst, she urged, a report without evidence could only turn suspicion against you. It wouldn't convict you as those other things may. 
You must get them. You must destroy them. Graham slipped quietly in and closed the door. The district attorney is coming himself with another detective, he said. I can guess what Catherine has been talking about. She's right. I'm a lawyer, and I know the penalty of tampering with evidence. But I don't believe you're a murderer, and I'll tell you as long as that evidence exists, they can convict you. They can send you to the chair. They may arrest you and try you anyway on his report. But I don't believe they can convict you on it alone. You're justified in protecting yourself, Bobby, in the only way you can. No one will see you go into the room. We'll arrange it so that no one can testify against you. Bobby felt himself at a crossroads. During the commission of those crimes, he had been unconscious. If he had, in fact, had anything to do with them, his personality, his real self, had known nothing, had done no wrong. His body had merely reacted to hideous promptings whose source lurked at the bottom of the black pit. To tamper with evidence would be a conscious crime. All the more, because of his doubt of himself, he shrank from that. Catherine saw his hesitation. It's a matter of your life or death. But although Catherine decided him it wasn't with that, she came closer, she looked straight at him, and her eyes were full of an affection that stirred him profoundly. For my sake, Bobby. He studied the dead ashes of the fire which a little while ago had played on Howells, vital and antagonistic, by the door of the private staircase. The man had challenged him to do just the thing from which he shrank. But Howells was no longer vital or antagonistic, and it occurred to him that a little of his shrinking arose from the thought of approaching and robbing the still thing upstairs, all that was left of the man who had not been afraid of the mystery of the locked room. For my sake, Catherine repeated. Bobby squared his shoulders. He fought back his momentary cowardice. The affection in Catherine's eyes was stronger than that. All right, he said. Howells never gave me a chance while he was alive. He'll have to now. He's dead. Catherine relaxed. Graham's face was quite white, but he gave his instructions in a cold, even tone. We'll go to the hall now. Catherine will go on upstairs. She mustn't see you enter the room, but she will watch in the corridor while you are there to be sure you aren't disturbed. You and I will chat for a while with the others, Bobby, then you will go up. You understand? Paredes mustn't even guess what you are doing. I'll keep him and groom downstairs. If he spied, if he knew what you were at, he'd have a weapon in his hand I hate to think about. He may be all right, but we can't risk any more than we have to. We must go on tiptoe. He opened the door. Catherine gave Bobby's hand a quick, encouraging pressure. Take this stuff to my room, Graham whispered. The first chance we'll destroy it so that no trace will be left. They went to the hall. Without speaking, Catherine climbed the stairs. Graham drew a chair between Paredes and the doctor. Bobby lounged against the mantel, trying to find in the Panamanian's face some clue as to his real feelings. 
but Paredes's eyes were closed. His hand drooped across the chair arm. His slender, pointed fingers held, as if from mere habit, a lifeless cigarette. Asleep, Graham whispered. Without opening his eyes, Paredes spoke. No, I feel curiously awake. He yawned. Dr. Groom glanced at his watch. The powers of prosecution, he grumbled, ought to be here within the next fifteen or twenty minutes. Bobby glanced at Graham. Then it wasn't safe to delay too long. More and more as he waited he shrank from the invasion of the room of death. The prospect of reaching out and touching the still, cold thing on the bed revolted him. Was there anything in that room capable of forbidding his intention? Was there, in short, a surer, more malicious force for evil than his unconscious self at work in the house? He was about to make some formal comment to the others to embark on his distasteful adventure when Paredes, as if he had read Bobby's mind, opened his eyes, languidly left his chair, and walked to the foot of the stairs. "'Where are you going?' Graham asked sharply. Paredes waved his hand indifferently and walked on up. There was something of stealth in his failure to reply, in his cat-like tread on the stairs. Graham and Bobby stared after him, unable to meet this new situation audibly because of groom. Yet five minutes had gone. There was no time to be lost. Paredes mustn't rob Bobby of his chance. With a sort of desperation, he started for the stairs. Graham held out his hand as if to restrain him, then nodded. Bobby had his foot on the first step when Catherine's cry reached them shaping the moment to their use. For there was no fright in her cry. It was, rather, angry, and Bobby and Graham ran up while Dr. Groom remained in his chair, an expression of blank amazement on his face. A candle burned on the table in the upper hall. Catherine and Paredes stood near the entrance of the old corridor. Paredes, as usual, was quite unruffled, Catherine's attitude was defensive. She seemed to hold the corridor against him. The anger of her cry was active in her eyes. Paredes laughed lightly, sorry to have given the household one more shock. Fortunately, no harm done. What is it, Catherine? Graham demanded. I don't know, she answered. He startled me. He entered the corridor. Paredes nodded. Quite right. She was there. I was on my way to my room. If your house had electricity, Bobby, this incident would have been avoided. I saw something dark in the corridor. You may not know, Graham said, that ever since we found Howells, one of us has tried more or less to keep the entrance of that room under observation. Yet you were all downstairs a little while ago, Paredes yawned. It's too bad I may have taken my turn then. At any rate, since I was excluded from your confidence, I overcame my natural fear, and for Bobby's sake slipped in, and I'm afraid startled Miss Catherine. Yes, she said. 
His explanation was reasonable. There was nothing more to be said, but Bobby's doubt of his friend sown by Graham and stimulated by the incident of the last hour was materially strengthened. He felt a sharp fear of Paredes. Such reserve, such concealment of emotion was scarcely human. If, Graham was saying, you really want to help Bobby, there is something you can do. Will you come downstairs with me for a moment? I'd like to suggest one or two things before the police arrive. Without hesitation, Paredes followed Graham down the stairs. Catherine turned immediately to Bobby, her eyes eager, full of the tense determination that had dictated her plan in the library. Now, Bobby, she whispered, and there's no time to waste. They may be here any minute. I won't see you go, but I'll be back at once to guard you against Paredes if he slips up again. She walked across the hall and disappeared in the newer corridor. Without witness, he faced the old corridor, and with the attempt directly ahead, his repugnance achieved a new power. The black entrance with its scarcely dared memories reminded him that what he was about to do was directed against more than human law, was an outrage against the dead man. He had to remind himself of the steely purpose with which Howells had marked him as the murderer and the man's power persisted after death. In such a contest, he was justified. He took the candle from the table, through the stairwell. The murmur of Graham's voice, occasionally interrupted by Groom's heavy tones or the languid accents of Paredes, drifted encouragingly. Trying to crush his premonitions, Bobby entered the corridor. Instead of illuminating the narrow passage, the candle seemed half smothered by its blackness. For the first time in his memory, Bobby faced the entrance of the sinister room alone. He pushed open the broken door. He paused on the threshold. It impressed him as not unnatural that he should experience such misgivings. They sprang not alone from the fact that within twenty-four hours two men had died unaccountably within these faded walls, nor did the evidence pointing to his own unconscious guilt wholly account for them. At the bottom of everything was the fact that from his earliest childhood he had looked upon the room as consecrated to death, had consequently feared it, had he recalled, always hurried past the disused corridor leading in its direction. Through its wide spaces the light of the candle scarcely penetrated. No more than an indefinite radiance thrust back the obscurity and outlined the bed. He could barely see the stark black form outstretched there. The dim, vast room, as he advanced, imposed upon him a sense of isolation. Catherine in the upper hall, the others downstairs, whose voices no longer reached him, seemed all at once far away. He stood in a place lonelier and more remote than the piece of woods where he had momentarily opened his eyes last night 
and instead of the straining trees and the figure in the black mask which he had called his conscience he had for motion and companionship only the swaying of the curtains in the breeze from the open window and the dark prostrate thing whose face as he went closer was like a white mask a mask with a fixed and malevolent sneer the wind caught the flame of the candle making it flicker tenuous shadows commenced to dance across the walls he paused with a tightening throat for the form on the bed seemed moving too with sly and scarcely perceptible gestures then he understood it was the effect of the shaking candle and he forced himself to go on but a sense of a multiple companionship accompanied him a sense of a shapeless soundless companionship that projected an idea of a steady regard there swept through his mind a procession of figures in quaint dress and with faces not unlike his own remembered from portraits and family legends men and women to whom this room had been familiar within whose limits they had suffered cried out a too powerful agony and died it seemed to him that he waited for voices to guide him to urge him on as katherine had urged him or to drive him back because he was an intruder in a company whose habit was strange and terrifying he forced his glance from the shadows which seemed more active along the walls he raised his candle and stared at the dead man the cast was undoubtedly there the coat stretched tightly across the breast outlined it he stood at the side of the bed he had only to bend and place his hand in the pocket which the cast filled awkwardly the wind alone he saw wasn't responsible for the shaking of the candle his hand shook as the shadow shook as the thing on the bed shook the sense of loneliness grew upon him until it became complete appalling for the first time he understood that loneliness can possess a ponderable quality it was he felt potent and active in the room a thing he couldn't understand or challenge or overcome his hand tightened he thought of katherine guarding the corridor of paredes and dr groom held downstairs by graham of the county authorities hurrying to seize this evidence that would convict him and he realized that his duty and his excuse were clear he understood that just now he had been captured by a force undefinable in terms of the world he knew for a moment he eluded the stealthy fleshless hands of the impalpable skirmishers he reached impulsively out to the dead man he was about to place his fingers in the pocket which after all was said and done held his life in the light of the candle the face seemed alive and more menacing than it had ever done in life about the straight smile was a wider more triumphant quality the candle flickered sharply it expired the conquering blackness took his breath he told himself it was the draft from the window which was strong but the companionship of the night was closer and more numerous the darkness wreathed itself into mocking and 
tortuous bodies whose faces were hidden in an agony of revolt against these incorporeal these fanciful horrors he reached in the pocket he sprang back with a choked inaudible cry for the dead thing beneath his hand was stirring the dead cold thing with a languid and impossible rebuke moved beneath his touch and the pocket he had felt was empty the coat a moment ago bulging and awkward was flat there sprang to his mind the mad thought that the detective malevolent in life had long after death snatched from his hand the evidence carefully gathered on which everything for him depended End of chapter 4, section 2 of The Abandoned Room.